walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 62. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. We return to the Via Podiensis today for part two of the series focused on walking this magnificent pilgrim's road from Le puy en velay to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. Back in episode 60, we took our first steps, walking from Le Puy to aumont aubrac and learning a bit about Saint-Roche along the way. And if a dog was the real star of that episode, it's a cow that shines brightest today. Today's section spans two of the most evocative and memorable regions on the Via Podiensis, first climbing into the Aubrac Plateau in the Massif Central region of France. From there, a significant descent follows down to the Lot River Valley. It includes one of my favorite walks on pilgrimage, and a highlight reel stage that links together three spectacular villages. To celebrate those brilliant 80 kilometers properly, I'm joined by Melinda Lesmore of I Love Walking in France, who has deep expertise on this route and many others. For all that, though, the most memorable site in this stretch may well be the inestimable Aubrac cattle that amiably stroll through the idyllic fields. And... Quite understandably, that led me to to Texas, as it turns out. Texas. Because at Bidai Creek Farms, I managed to find a cattle rancher, Michelle Crawford, who specializes in the Aubrac breed, to fill me in on answers to all the heavy-hitting questions I had. Questions like, what does it mean when a cow is mooing? That's the kind of insight you can count on me bringing to the table here each and every week. So Via Podiensis, part two. If you only had three days for a walk, you could do a whole lot worse than this section of the Chemin. Let's hit the trail. Australia's Melinda Lesmore is the creator of ilovewalkinginfrance.com a website and accompanying series of guidebooks on, as you might expect, a variety of different walking routes through France, including the Via Podiensis, the Stevenson Trail, and the Midi Canal. Before we jump into our section of the Via Podiensis for today, I just want to ask you, what got you hooked? Because you are tremendously experienced on walking in France, and you've put together this great resource for people at ilovewalkinginfrance.com. It's a significant amount of work, a lot of time. What hooked you on France? I first visited France in 2006, and I fell in love with the food, the wine, the beautiful countryside, quaint little villages, all the history. But like many Australians traveling to the far side of the planet, It was tempting to cram too many places into too little time. So the idea of slowing down and walking through France appealed to me enormously. And to discover there was a vast network of walking paths, which linked all these things together, was just heaven for me. It was just a wonderful way to experience everything I love about France. So we're going to talk about the Via Podiensis. People who become 
pilgrims who walk on the Camino and get hooked, sometimes have tunnel vision. So before we talk about that, given how many different walks, how many different walking experiences you have in France, if someone came to you and said, I've walked the Via Podiensis and I want to walk again in France, what would your suggestion be? Look, it would depend entirely on what it was that they most loved about the Via Podiensis, because I think that one ties together a lot of things. It has beautiful countryside. It has beautiful villages. It has the camaraderie that you meet with all, find with all the other walkers and pilgrims. And that's sometimes what's missing on other walks. So I would say if you're going for the countryside, certainly there are other ones that are good. If you want the camaraderie, there's a different set of other ones that I would do. If it were just for the beauty? I think perhaps the coast of Brittany, mm. and which is just a spectacular coastline, or one I did in 2018, which was the La Chapelle Jurassienne, which starts in or sort of a little to the east of Burgundy, and it goes across to more or less level with where Geneva is. So it goes through vineyards, farmlands, that sort of Swiss Alp countryside, a lot of variety, beautiful scenery, but no no other walkers. So don't go there for the camaraderie. <laughs> <laughs> I think every French person I talk to about where I should go walk in France says Brittany. It's stunning. Someday, someday, it's on the <laughs> list. But for today, we're on the Via Podiensis. If I had been choosing one section to talk about it would have probably either been the Sele Valley or this one that you chose. I love <laughs> this part of the Via Podiensis. Still very early in the walk. This is the second chunk as I've broken it up for this series of episodes. And it's just magnificent. It is. It's just glorious. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> and so it's about 80 kilometers that we have to talk through. And I have it in the longer stage alignment of three with the acknowledgement that the middle one that we'll talk about is going to be broken up into two pieces for a lot of people. Yeah. The whole thing we're talking about is Omont Obrac to Estang. So we start heading into the Obrac Plateau and we will eventually descend to the Lot River Valley over the course of this conversation. And the first chunk is Omont Obrac to Nazbinal. And depending on how you do it, it's, it's somewhere between 26 and a little over 27 kilometers. And that's mostly because I am insistent on a detour to Cascade du Duroc. Oh. That is the hill I'm going to die on. I feel very strongly about this, but we'll, we'll get there. We're starting out from Omanto Brock. We're at about 1,100 meters. Mm -hmm. What stands out to you as you think about the opening sections, the first half or so of this stage? The part where I really start to love it is around the halfway point where you get to Bushman is where I, for me, I don't know if there's a boundary, but for me, that's where the Albrecht Plain starts. Mm -hmm. And the countryside just opens up into those vast plains. And I just, just love it from there on in. Not that the first half is unpleasant, far from it. But I really love that second part. But do you know, before you leave Ormont or Brack, one thing I love about there is the Michelin starred restaurant. <laughs> mm. You know, I know that's not very Camino like, <laughs> but <laughs> if you're there with friends, it's a good opportunity for a very good meal. <laughs> Maybe an alternative to Aligo, something a little bit more, oh, <laughs> a little bit lighter. For that as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's great. That's good to know. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the great things about the route is just the mm. ability to experience local cuisine. It's one of the huge advantages over walking one of the French branches of the Camino as opposed to the the Spanish, where Spain has remarkable cuisine. It's just not always as accessible to pilgrims in the same way that it is in France. Yes, that's right. But walking-wise, I think, you know, that second half of this section into Naspinol's is just, I could do it over and over again every year. You, know? <laughs> you and I are 100% aligned on that. You know, when I was walking with my student group this past summer, I had been amping them up for this stage. And we walked through the first 10 kilometers or so through the village of Las Bros, which they probably would have been more excited about if we had been there at a time when the burgers were being served at the at the bar there. <laughs> but, you know, the first 10 kilometers, they were just kind of underwhelmed. It was pleasant, but not a lot to differentiate it from some of the the walking preceding it. Yeah. But as you say, as you get past Le Quatremin and Finirol, then you come out on the plateau, it opens up, you have these golden fields, regal cows, mm. wonderful footpaths with thistly plants growing up along the side that are purple. And it's amazing. It is amazing. Yes, it is. And the cowbells, I just, I love everything about it. <laughs> I must say this time when I walked through, I noticed right out on the horizon, there was a lot of fog coming in. Mm -hmm. And so it was the first time I'd experienced that. And because there are not a lot of trees on that section and it, most of the path markings are low to the ground, it was the first time I'd had that sense that in poor visibility, it could be quite unnerving to walk through there, but we didn't catch the fog and it just added a little mystery to it. But no, it was beautiful. Yeah, my first time walking through there, it was gray and drizzly and actually much colder than I was prepared for. So happened there was a marathon taking place that overlapped with the route at one point. Oh. So my... My first time through, I didn't appreciate it, but it's been glorious sunshine every time since. And there's one spot, it's called the Roque de Loup, where you have these boulders in the field just to the left of the trail. And one of the things that we discovered is, you know, you can climb up on the boulders and there's even a small stone labyrinth that's been built in the field beneath the boulders. And the boulders are the tallest thing around. So you just can admire the countryside. It's beautiful. Yeah. No, it is lovely. So as you continue from there, you you descend and you pass through the village and go to the Pont de Marchastel, the old stone bridge crossing the river. Mm. And that's where the options are. So you have walked, staying with the GR65 through Montgros. Yes. I, and in fact, last time I stayed at Montgros overnight, I didn't go all the way into Naspinals. It's a very pleasant little village. Yes, it is. It's lovely. The alternative is it's unmarked, but if you fork left just after the bridge, you can get to the waterfall. There's a big waterfall just a, a little ways off. So it adds 1.4 kilometers to the walk. Okay. It's very easy to navigate to, and it's just dramatic because you come in at the top of the waterfall. And so you come up onto the rocky edge overlooking it. It's crashing down beneath you. Not as much crashing this past summer because of the drought, but in previous years, it was quite spectacular. And you can walk down, you can walk underneath and behind it. And it's just marvelous. 
Oh, wonderful. Okay, that's it. That's for next time. For next time. And they've even added an Argentine barbecue at the top of the waterfall. So it's got everything. <laughs> so that's for me, uh, another big highlight. And, and the most controversial thing probably I did in my, my book is officially routing it in my suggestions past the waterfall oh. and off the GR65. So that would bypass Mont Gros, but still take you into Nesbanos? Exactly. Okay. Which is too bad about Mont Gros. And you could double back if you still wanted to stay there. But I mean, there's only so many waterfalls and <laughs> exactly not that much work. <laughs> and then on to Nasvinals, which is a beautiful village as well. What stands out to you about that village? The church, I think. The church yeah. is just so pretty. And inside, it just struck me, there's a lot of little wooden statues of Mary and Joseph and, you know, various saints. But they're all mounted on the columns. So they're all looking down over people sitting in the pews. And they're just like those quaint little statues. They just remind me of Sunday school monitors, like <laughs> you've got your eyes closed during prayer time. And I just find it really quaint and unusual. But I do love it. The Spanish route is famous for its Gothic architecture. The Via Podiensis is much more about Romanesque. And that's just a marvelous example of it. Just stocky and solid and clearly holding the town together at the center of it as even the main road just loops around it like the lot river does in so many towns mm. the church holds everything together yes no but it, it is a nice little village and has everything you know after you've walked 27 kilometers there's everything you could want is there isn't it yeah and it's important because there aren't that many places to get everything you know on the walk Coming in here, you're not going to find a grocery store after a Monte mm. Brock, and you're not going to have great options from here, depending on how things shake out for you schedule-wise for a bit. So it's yeah. it's an important village for its two little grocery yeah. stores. Mm. So that's the first leg of this. What follows is either a long stage with a lot of downhill, 32 and a half kilometers, or a lot of people will break it into two 16-kilometer chunks splitting it down the middle in Saint-Chalidot-Brac. Yes, so this time I actually took three days. Even better, because <laughs> it's it's a thousand meters of descent over the course of the last 25, 26 kilometers of this. Yes, yes. The first time I did it, I did the hilly section between uh, Saint-Chalidot-Brac and Saint-Combe-Dolt, which, you know, goes up and down those two hills. And the second one goes up to the statue and the views were fabulous, but I was just so exhausted at the end of that. So so this time, I, what I really wanted to do was stay in the village of Orbrac, which I just adore, and then go to St. Comdalt and then on to Espalion. But even booking ahead accommodation, I couldn't get the accommodation I wanted. So it was this time it was St. Shelley, St. Com, and Espalion for me. So Love it. <laughs> very relaxed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll just underscore here. Nothing gets more heat than talking about stages. So just to un <laughs> reinforce, there's no right or wrong way to do it. So like do it in eight stages and enjoy the hell out of it if you want. Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. sometimes that even walking, you can feel like you're just in and out of a village, aren't you? You're just in mm -hmm. one in the evening and out the next morning. And, and in some ways that also seems like a rush. So I'd always felt that there was more to a spallion than I had rushed through. And I wanted to give it a really good look around this time. But yes, so I just wanted to relax and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. 
and we'll get to Espalion in a little bit and we'll we'll enjoy yeah. it the best we can. For this, as you said, the, there's a village about six kilometers in, the village of Obrock, not to be confused mm -hmm. with Omont Obrock or the Obrock Plateau. It's just Obrock, Obrock. Yes. And it's an ascent, a couple hundred meters. And this is the other part, I think, of spectacular Obrock walking. This ascent along footpaths, almost certainly blocked at some point by herds of cattle mm -hmm. just lounging in the middle of the trail. <laughs> yes. And it's a funny thing. I have stayed in Nasbinal almost every time that I've walked this route. So for me, my memories of Obrak are the sun rising in the background, the grass just glistening green in the early morning light, fog mm -hmm. rolling across the hillside. Everything about it is just magical. It is. And there's nothing new about it. You know, it's the same village that I love. The people who walked through in the 1300s saw exactly the same thing that, that we look at today. And I just, I love that. Yeah. It is beautiful. And then the village itself is, you know, founded by pilgrims centuries ago. And yeah. you have the old medieval tower that today is a jeet that pilgrims can still sleep in. And mm -hmm. A great spot if you want to get a slice of tart or uh, some other <laughs> snack in the center. So it's uh, well set up to take care of walkers. Yes, yes. The only thing I would say there is I did meet some people here. I love the church there. And I've been inside the church and there's all those murals around the walls, which are just so beautiful. But uh, I didn't meet. I was walking with another group of people this time who, because the path didn't take the 100-metre detour to the church, <laughs> had assumed that there was nothing worth seeing about it and just kept going. So I would say to anybody listening, call into that church in all brackets, not to be missed. <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing how those tiny detours become massive impediments to people when they're walking. Yes, yes. No, I, I love, love all Brack and I love the story of the pilgrim who founded it. It's all, it's just wonderful. It even briefly had a bakery until it burned down within the first year of its construction. So hopefully it'll be back. I picked up a brochure somewhere on one of my visits. It said that there was, in the very beginning, the monastery baked 5,000 bread rolls a day and sheltered 500 pilgrims most nights, which is just hard to imagine nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, when like 50 people live there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Abrak hang out, enjoy the view. And if you have bad knees, I'm sorry for what's ahead. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> it's all downhill to Saint-Chalie d'Aubrac, which is around the midpoint. So again, a very convenient spot if you're looking to break this stage into two nice pieces. It's another place where the church is 100 meters off route. So probably a lot of people don't go there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes. Yes. One thing that stuck out for me for Saint-Chalie is that I found it seems very everyday to some, like a lot of the other villages are very quaint, whereas St. Shelley seems to be more like a functioning tiny town. There's a school there. So school kids come in and go out. All the normal things that we have back here are there in St. Shelley, but in this very old setting, it's, there was just that juxtaposition for me of everyday life 500 years ago and everyday life today existing in the same place, which... I love, yes. You know what does it for me is whether you can park cars in the central plaza or not. 
that for me, that's the determinant of whether this is a working town or not a working town. <laughs> and that center is just like a little bit more congested. There's more cars going through. It's just uh, the feeling is a little bit different. Yes, but lovely, all the same. And then you look at the elevation profile. And so in your head, you've gotten this idea that it's all downhill all the way from Obrock to Saint-Côme-de-Alt. But no, no, no. As you alluded <laughs> to before, when you leave saint chalis you cross the old Pilgrim Bridge and then it is up. Yes, for quite a way, isn't it? But it's great because it gives you that beautiful view back over the village and yeah, as you look back and think, okay, the kids are going in and out of school, morning recess is happening, it's just life goes on. <laughs> and then into the woods. Yes, into the woods. <laughs> and so you've got that wooded stretch, you go up, work your way back down. The other thing that stands out for me is there's this village of Lestrade, it's the next stop, and it has a covered mm -hmm. pilgrim shelter. And it's one of the just really nice touches along the way is these periodic rest stops that have been set up in the villages. You know, clearly people caring for the walkers, thermoses of coffee, kittens ready to pounce on you while you take a break. It's a nice little place. It is. That one in particular is very well known, isn't it? But it's something you look forward to each time, isn't it? Yeah. And then there is still another sneaky little uphill waiting for you. It's not <laughs> over yet. This is another one of those where I uh, earned the ire of my students at one point by forgetting about it. And it was a very hot day. And we had one last uphill to the village of La Rosière. And it'll catch you and you will <laughs> not be happy. Yes. You know, they're not technically difficult, any of these. Just feet down, head down, one foot in front of the other. <laughs> when you're thinking that, you know, I have a thousand meters of downhill and then you go up hill 100 meters you didn't factor that into the math so you're yeah. you're not appreciating that but then it's the last jarring descent into saint combe de Ault, and the world has changed to me it's one of the amazing things about walking long distances is how the entire world around you can change that you started the morning in the obrock plateau you climbed up to 1300 meters and now you drop all the way down to 370 meters, the trees thin out around you, and you enter the river valley of the lot. Yes, it is. I think the Aubrac sort of finishes for me around St. Shelley d'Aubrac. And then it is, it's quite different ambiance, isn't it? The woods, and then as you say, comes down into the valley. It's it's lovely. What do you think about Saint-Combe-de-Alt? I love it. But do you know, I, I, I was very lucky I had been there before I walked. And so I'd explored the town and it has a couple of little monuments that you don't pass on the path. You know, as you're coming into town, the path goes straight ahead into the main square. But if you turn right, there's another little chapel mm -hmm. just down there, which is beautiful. And I think it's from about the 12th century. And then just around from there, there's a monument which is dedicated to all the victims of the plague back in the 16th century. I think when it came through, according to the plaque, it says that 1,500 people died, which was three quarters of the population. You know, I think, especially in the last few years, you think, you know, in every family of four, one person survived. Very moving little monument. And I guess that happened all the way through there, that region of France and, you know, throughout Europe. But they just bring us at home the little reminders like that. I think St. Comdolt is one of those places where it if you've got a map in advance, it's good to have a, 
just a little wander around town as you're um, passing through. But the medieval buildings there are truly lovely, aren't they? Such a perfect little circle of a medieval village. The road itself in the middle just winds all the way around it. The church at the center with its twisted spire. Yes. The only thing that, I mean, it's not a problem. It's it's charming in its own right. It just feels utterly deserted every time I've been there. I think I've had some bad luck maybe being there on the day of the week when a lot of things are closed. But I feel like every time I'm in Saint-Combe-de-Olt, it's more like a movie set where... Oh, wow. In contrast to what you said about Saint-Chalie, where life is happening. Yes. Saint-Combe-de-Olt feels like a museum piece. Oh, okay. No, it hasn't been that that way for me (laughs) at all. In fact, one year I was there, which was just after the Transhumance, the cattle route that goes through at the end of May, and so in St. Com, they would have this sort of festival thing happening there where they had all these paper mache cows wow. scattered throughout the village. So, you know, there was an Egyptian cow and, and you know, Rastafarian cow. It was wonderful. So, no, I've never seen that deserted side of it. Wow, that's amazing. For all that, for me talking about it being deserted, at the same time, it is one of the places along this route that is emblematic to me of hospitality. Over the years, I was able to stay with Sabine and Sylvain at the Gite Communale La Romeu a handful of times. And one of those perfect pilgrimage moments that happened over this last year is I didn't think I was going to be able to run a student group back this past summer because of COVID. Things had been shut down, you know, for years. And at the very last minute, absolute last minute, I got clearance to run a trip. And so I'm trying to quickly coordinate accommodations for the group. And around that same time, our friend Bronwyn tells me, because she knows I love La Romeo, that Sabine and Sylvain are apparently retiring. They're moving on. And so I email them to see if they are retiring and then also to see if I could schedule our visit. And it turned out that as everything shook out, the night that we were going to be in Saint-Combe-de-Haute, was their very last night hosting Pilgrims ever. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It was a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, Just a lovely night. That would have been, yes, really magical. And just so wonderful that you could share that moment with them. Yeah. I never know exactly how French hosts are going to feel about a group of American high schoolers. (laughs) And on the whole, they've been fantastic. But Sabine and Sylvain were always magnificent and you know Gaetan and his partner have taken over now and they'll carry it forward in that spirit that's good because but it is a beautiful little sheet isn't it absolutely right in the wall in the center it's a perfect little spot so that's Sancomdolt and that leaves us with one more stage which I kind of think is you know if you had to pick one stage as like a highlight reel stage on the Via Podiensis it might be this one, Sancombe de Haute to a Stong. Yeah. 21 kilometers with about as much perfect scenery and especially village scenery as you could ever hope for in one day of walking. <laughs> That's true. And I would recommend, you know, the, the first bit there from Sancombe Interest Valley on, you've got the hilly option yeah. or the option alongside the river. And I would recommend you know unless you're really pressed for time or really struggling physically take the hilly route because the view from up there is just beautiful isn't it 
even though I, I knew last time I wanted to arrive in Espalion feeling pretty fresh and having all day. So I did take the river route and it was a little tedious and monotonous. Yeah, I found the river was hidden by vegetation for a lot of the way. So you're really not looking at anything terribly interesting, but the hilly route, well worth it. <laughs> I'm with you there. That view from the top, you have all of Espalion stretched out beneath you. You have the castle above the town oh. straight across. It's magnificent. You've done worse in the preceding days, so you can do this too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how anyone would manage this as a, a full 33-kilometre section, but I know the first time I did it, I did it from St. Shelley through to Espalion and took the hilly route, and I was pretty shattered by the end of that day. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of hills. And funnily enough, when we came through that first gully between St. Comdalt and Espalion, there was a paintball game going. Yes. So there was paint flying everywhere, but everybody stopped and, and let us walk through. It was just bizarre. I've <laughs> always wondered about it because I have seen what looked to me like a paintball course there, but I have never timed it as <laughs> you have. So I'm glad to know my assumptions have been confirmed there. Yes. <laughs> One of the things that I think about with this stretch is, you know, there are people who like to have zero days, who like to have off days built into their schedule. So they figure out where they're going to take a day off. But I've always thought that this stage from Sankhome de Olt to Estong, 20, 21 kilometers, instead of taking a zero day, walk eight kilometers to Espalion, spend the night, walked in 12 kilometers to Estong and get the best of both worlds, getting to enjoy both of these villages. Exactly what I did this time. And Espalion is beautiful, and I really hadn't given it credit. You know, I had really rushed through it. There were a few things I found there that I really loved. There's the little church, Iglista Purse, as you first arrived. And, and the first time I was just too shattered to go in and have a look. And it was so beautiful inside. There's frescoes on the ceilings. Yeah. Just gorgeous. And it's so pretty. So I did that this time and spent a bit more time in Espalion, wandering the streets and having a good look around. One of the most famous photos that exists of this route is of the rivers and bridges in Espalion. Yes. The lot passing through along the side of the old village walls. It's just mm -hmm. a spectacular vista, uh, just a, an absolutely stunning place. And if you look closely, you also see a statue of a of a little man in a scuba suit, which will catch yes. you off guard. <laughs> yes. Who would have thought the two people who invented the diving helmet yeah. would come from near Espalion? And another thing I discovered in Espalion, there was another little um, chapelle de penitent in one of the back streets there that I was able to call into in the afternoon. Many, many centuries ago, a beautiful old bridge in Espalion had three towers on it and shops all the way across. So much like the Ponte Vecchio in yeah. Florence, you can imagine. When they dismantled the towers off it, that's what they used to build this chapel de Penitent. So inside is this wonderful Baroque decorations and a couple of French volunteers that will show you around and tell you all about the history of it. Another, you know, little gem that you just need to um, have that little bit of extra time to discover while you're there. And lots of these towns and villages along the way have market days. Espalion's is a Friday. That's a great market if you can be there. 
Yes, yes, I haven't. I've never been there on a Friday, but it does look particularly good, that one. <laughs> and some great bakeries in town as well. You will eat very well in Espalione. Lots of cafes, lots of bakeries, lots to choose from. And so if you're carrying on, then you know, that's the hard part then, is tearing yourself away when you've got all those good options. Yes. But we will carry on. And you follow the lot out of town for little ways, a tree-lined walkway, then ultimately cut inland, and you get to another jewel. So you mentioned the Eglise de Perse before Espalion, Espalion itself, and then there's Bessujules. Which is just magical, isn't it? <laughs> this amazing old Romanesque church, small creek running alongside, trees towering overhead, grassy lawn, perfect little Romanesque bridge next to it. It's gorgeous. And have you been up the top of the, the bell tower? Oh, of course I have. You have <laughs> to go upstairs. You walk in the main room, the main hall of, of Bessu Jules, and you'll say, yeah, it's a nice church, but you have to go up the narrow stairs at the back. And what do you find there, Melinda? Oh, it's this ancient little chapel, frescoes on the walls. There's so much atmosphere in there, isn't there? Yeah. And, uh, it's just beautiful. You must do that. But do you know, when I walked through this last year, the door was locked. I could not get into the no. church. No. I know. And two French people, a French couple came up behind me. They couldn't get it open either. So I know it wasn't just me. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't see it this last time, but I have been up a couple of times before. And it is so beautiful, so old, very special. This is one of those things that I bring up a lot when it comes to walking in France versus walking in Spain. One of the frustrations often in Spain is getting to the church and it's locked. So many of the churches are locked, but almost every church you come to in France is unlocked. And so you can go in and, and see it. Yes. I know people who walked through the following day after me and got in just fine. <laughs> so clearly, I was doing something wrong. I'd say persevere. If you can't get the door open, go and ask the lady in the cafe because you must go inside, must have a look. And from there, there used to be an absolutely wicked uphill up almost, it felt like a cliff face leaving Bessie Jules. They've rerouted it now so that you wind out a little bit along a, a road. You do a switchback up and around. It's a lot easier now. That's funny to say that because the first time I went through, I didn't notice anything difficult. And Bronwyn said, oh, you'll be glad to know they've rerouted that section. And I thought, <laughs> oh, really? But this time I thought, oh, good Lord, how can this be the better option? Because I found this time a bit tricky. It just shows you, doesn't it, that, yep. um, you know, some days are good climbing days and other days are real. <laughs> no, it used to be kind of a, you need to use your hands kind of climb. I don't remember that at all. It's been simplified. So that's to the advantage of a lot of walkers. From there, it's not quite as interesting for a little bit. The thing that stands out to me is there's a village towards the end of this walk, Verrier, that... I think if it came on other days, people would pay more attention. They would say, this is a really pretty village. But it's coming, it's stuck on the day with Saint-Combe-de-Holt, Espalion, Bessujols, Estang, and it just gets overshadowed. It does. And, you know, this is the first time I walked through and I noticed how beautiful it was. And I, I even came home and looked at my different editions of the guidebook to see if they'd rerouted the path and I'd ever walked through it before because I had never noticed it. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing that day, but... 
it's a gorgeous little village, isn't it? Yeah. When you catch it in the light and the grass is really shining, it's just another one of those just perfect little bridges over the river. Yeah. A little church that is so easy to miss because you kind of have to look back to the left and up steps to notice it. Yeah. And it, it's in some disrepair, but you can just imagine how colorful and vibrant the interior was back in the day. Yes. Now, I did go back and, and have a little look, but you're right. You don't really see it until you get a bit, bit past it and you think, oh, look at that. <laughs> that was another short day for me. So plenty of time to backtrack and have a good look. <laughs> and then you carry on to one of the most beautiful villages that you will see, the village of Estong. And it was a picture of Estong in one of the first guidebooks I ever bought. It was a combination guide to the Via Podiensis and the Camino Frances. And there was a full page picture of a stong in there. And the moment I saw it, I wanted to walk this route. So a stong is what brought me here. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about a stong? Oh, it's just gorgeous. And you see it, you know, as you come down along the road and hit the river and you can see it on the other side there. So, you know, it's coming and it's just so beautiful, isn't it? And I often hope, I know a lot of the, organized tours they don't stay staying and because the park doesn't actually cross the bridge and go into Estang, i often worry that people doing a 33 day would just skip it i can't imagine they should just be kicked off their trip right at that <laughs> right at that point i know because <laughs> it's so beautiful so many beautiful little alleys back streets it's just the church is so gorgeous and even, I know if you press for time, you know, maybe going through, taking the walk through the chateau is not, you know, high on your list, but it's very interesting as well to go in and have a look through that. So it's a gorgeous little village. If you're there in the summer, it has one of the best positioned swimming pools, public swimming pools you could ever mm. hope for. It's right on the walkway before you cross the bridge into the town. So you have that yes. entire vista of the village right across from you. Yes. Fantastic. Pretty magical. And the other thing, we were lucky to be there once for the, the Feast of saint Florette. Oh, yes. It's a whole weekend celebration in the city. There's a candlelight procession. So, you know, if you time it right, it's, I think, first weekend in July. It's a magnificent time to be there. And, of course, the municipal pool will be open as well. Yes, that's true. And those candlelight parades in little villages like that are just so magical, aren't they? And there we are. That's a song. That is. We've arrived at our destination. When you get to a song, what what are the one, two, three things you're most excited about coming up next? The village of Conk, which is just spectacular, isn't it? Yeah. And I love the little village of Iraq as well, which mm. even though it's tiny and it's barely more than an intersection, it's so quaint, I think, and so tiny that I do like that one, but definitely Conk. And then Pijak and the Silly Variant, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, there's not much not to like, is there? <laughs> oh, no. So what's next for you then? What's your next walk in France going to be? Look, I'm thinking most likely I'd like to do a section uh, up around the coast that walks into Mont Saint-Michel. Yeah, so perhaps I might start, maybe just do the section that starts from Dinan, goes through Saint-Malo, and um, walks along the coast and finishes at Mont-Saint-Michel. Could be it. 
Oh, I would love to do that. There's another place where you see the picture and you're swept away. Yes. I'm really keen to go back and do this one again now. Thank you. <laughs> the walk down memory lane. And thank you as well. I think people will enjoy it. And I really appreciate how much time you put into all of that information that you you push out there for other walkers so that they can learn and follow in your footsteps on ilovewalkinginfrance.com. Michelle Crawford is the founder of Bedi Creek Farms near Houston, Texas. Michelle and Bedi Creek prioritizes a pesticide and herbicide-free, hormone and antibiotic-free, and grass-fed approach to cattle raising, with a focus on two breeds, the Red Devon and our beloved Obrock. You can find her at BedeyeCreekFarms.com, with Bedi spelled B-E-D-I-A-S. Thank you for speaking with me about the majestic Abrak cattle. And I'm wondering, so I, I found you in Texas, not in France. Right? <laughs> it's not where I expected to go for an interview for this. <laughs> How did you first learn about the Abrak breed of cattle? So it's a really weird story. I have a friend and she was learning how to drive horse carriages. And so I went with her on a whim. She said, come with me. I'm having a lesson. I said, okay. So I tagged along and there was another couple there who was also learning to drive horse drawn carriages. And we were talking at lunch and I had been looking for cattle because my husband for years said, no, no animals, no animals, no animals. So we <laughs> leased our property to the farmer next door and he raised rodeo bulls. They were nice to look at, but they were not friendly or you couldn't approach them at all. And they were always kind of a little bit scary. So we were having this conversation at lunch. And I said, I've been looking for this. I had found the Obrock because they're just so beautiful and they look so sweet. Like you just want to go up and hug them. And I said, I've been looking for this cow and it's called this Obrock. And they're like, we have those cows. I was like, really? Because I decided I wanted that cow. And then you can't find that cow in the United States. I was like, how is it not here? Hmm. Anyway, so they have them and they got me in touch with a man who is actually a veterinarian and he was having some health issues, but he had those cattle. And he said, yes, I'm going to disperse my herd. I would love to sell them to someone who really wants them. So that's how we found the cows. What was the appeal of the Abrak cows? Well, when you're an absentee farmer, there are a couple of things that once I started doing the research on how to raise cattle and what they need, what they don't need, I was kind of scared by what I found with a lot of the American breeds. These farmers going, I have to be there in the middle of the night to pull the calf when the mama's having a baby. And I was like, why do you have to do that? And the more you do the research, you're kind of like, well, because they started breeding for bigger cows. And so sometimes the baby gets too big and the mama can't pass it because it's just too big because you're breeding for a big animal. And so I came up with this list of criteria because I wasn't going to be there. I was like, well, I'm not going to be there. The mom's going to die. Baby's going to die. That's kind of tragic. So I started doing research on different cattle breeds. I had this list of criteria and one of things it had to be self-sufficient, had to be able to take care of itself because I wasn't going to be there all the time. I had started going to some cattle classes, like how to manage them. 
and I realized, well, this is a whole nother conversation, how awful the food system is because you're the lone voice in the class going, well, why do you give them antibiotics in their food? You're like, oh, because they're going to get sick. And I was like, I don't want those cows. I don't want my (laughs) cows to be like that. So I wanted something that was going to be healthy. And, you know, you're not going to have to give them all this extra stuff. So that's how I found the Obrock, you know, just kind of searching for criteria. They had to be healthy all the time. I didn't want sick cows. I wanted cows that do what God intended them to do out there grazing and eating and just being happy and pooping and peeing and not busting through the fences. And so I had done the research and Angus were historically known for breaking through fences. And I was like, well, that's a problem because if you're not there and they get out, then what do you do? And my husband's an attorney. He was like, well, we can't have them on the road because that's a liability issue. I said, okay. And then the Brahmin were bred for our climate because it gets really hot here, but they're not very tasty to eat because they're so lean and the meat is kind of tough and they're crazy. I mean, when I watch the people who have Brahmin cows working them, they have horses and they're screaming. And, and I was like, wow, I, I'm older. I don't want that. I don't need a rodeo every time I go out to see my cows. So that was a concern. I wanted them to have low birth weights because I didn't want to have to pull calves. I wanted to be able to milk really well because my research led me to believe that if they have high milk fat content, that translates into tender meat. And I knew I wanted to sell the meat. So that was a concern. So that was one of my goals. I wanted them to have longevity because the term cash cow, that's where it comes from. They give you a baby every year and you can sell that baby or eat that baby or whatever it is you do with it, but you get something every year from that mama cow. So that was important. Yeah. I mean, I just had this list and And I wanted them to be pretty. I didn't want to look at a, you know, I looked at some of those Angus cows and you're looking at them, they look like they're going to just attack you. And so when I found the Obrock, I was like, they just seem so majestic and so gentle. And, you know, they're just beautiful. They have that beautiful black ring around their eyes. Like they've been putting their makeup on all morning, you know, getting ready for you and docility. That was a really big thing for me because I'm older and I didn't want, I didn't want to get hurt. That was kind of what I was looking for. And then I found these people and I was like, I think this is a little divine providence happening because (laughs) how was I going to find these cows? And then I had lunch with someone who has a connection and I was like, okay, I think this is the cow I'm supposed to raise. And then once I got them, there's just so, oh my gosh, you just love being out there with them. I was going to ask, did it live up to the reputation? Oh my gosh. They're gentle. They come over. They just, they're very curious. They want you to rub behind their ears because they can't reach that far. (laughs) And there's some that are a little more flighty and you just kind of know, you get to know their personality, but they always come over. I can, people are like, well, how do you move your cows from pasture to pasture? Well, I call them. I, you know, (laughs) go out there and I say, girls, come on. They're like, oh, she's here. Let's go. It's kind of biblical. You know, if you think about it in the passages, you know, I am the shepherd and They are my sheep and they know my voice and I know theirs and I can go out and move them pretty easily. You might not have the same luck with my cows. Eventually they would come because they're that docile. But when I go out, they come when I call them. So it's really cool. We do have that experience sometimes when we're walking in France, we come along a footpath and the cattle are blocking the way. 
they won't recognize our voice. What would you suggest that we do? Think about cows. Cows are prey animals and prey animals are identified by where their eye position is. So the eye position is on the side of their heads, like horses and cows and sheep. So that's how they see. We are predators. Dogs are predators. Cats are predators because our eyes look forward. So when you're approaching a cow, you want to come from the side so that they can see you. I mean, never come up from behind them. That, that will really startle them. If they're in the road, they're probably used to crossing that road at some point. There's typically a leader. And once the leader starts going, the rest of them will follow. But I will warn you, they're big animals. And if you startle them, they are going to move quickly and suddenly and unpredictably. But yeah, so I would say it's about eye contact and staying in their line of vision, which is sideways, you know, so you want to be in front or to the side so they can see you and just being very thoughtful and intentional with your motions and your actions, not, not screaming or, or moving really suddenly. And if you move towards them, they're going to move away from you. So it's kind of a pressure situation. You're trying to get them to move to the right. You want to put a little pressure on their left side. So they can see you and they're going to move away from that pressure. That's what I would say. I wouldn't try to go and feed them something because you just don't know. It's like any animal walking up to someone who has a dog and you don't know, can I pet your dog? You always want to ask that before you do it because you might lose a finger. It is funny though. I was thinking about this. If I want to show appreciation to a dog, I know how to engage with a dog and I know how to engage with a cat. And I think I even have a plan for how to engage with a donkey at this point. I have no idea how to engage with a cow. And walking through the Aubrac Plateau, I spent a lot more time with cows than with people. And <laughs> as we've talked about, they're beautiful. I admire them. How do you suggest that someone walking along interact with a cow? Is there a way to do that? When my husband comes out, for instance, because he's not with them all the time, my advice to him is always have a plan of escape. So if things go a little awry, you know which way you're going to leave. And you always want to leave from kind of the same direction you came from, but give them their, their space, give them a good breath. And they're curious about you as much as you are curious about them. And if they start to walk towards you, that's a good thing. Let them come towards you because they're, they're going to tell you when they've had enough of your appreciation. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they're, they're very curious and they want to, there's some who are going to say, no, I don't want any part of this person and I'm going to run past you. But there are some who are just going to kind of look at you and go, what are, what are you doing here? Do you have a cookie in your pocket? <laughs> you have a, a little alfalfa cube in there I might, might have a nibble on? Yeah. I would say just stand and watch. I do a lot of that. I just stand and watch them. And sometimes they just stare back at you until they realize that you're not there to hurt them. And then they kind of go on with their thing. They're just so phenomenal to watch. They're really interesting creatures. What might it mean when a cow is mooing in my direction? So sometimes it means I don't know who you are and I don't know why you're here. And so I'm warning the other people, my other cow people, that there's someone here that we don't know. Sometimes it means if they're just out in the pasture and they see you and they start mooing, they're just... They could be hungry. They could be warning the other cows that there's someone here approaching. When I drive up and my cows see me, they're saying, oh, we're so happy to see you. Sometimes they're in the pasture and they're mooing because they're hungry. 
but typically it's one cow who's telling the other cows something. It was interesting because the Obrox are very maternal. So as calving season happens and there's a lot of little babies on the ground, there seems to be always one mom who's sort of in charge of babysitting, if you will. Everybody else is out eating and foraging and filling their rumens up with food. And someone else, it was usually Tootie in our herd. She was making sure that the babies all, because they tend to wander off and they can get under a fence and then they don't know how to get back through the fence. So anyway, that it's just, so it could be the mom, the caretaker, the babysitter saying, okay, we've had a baby who's wandered off. Someone needs to go get it. Could be lots of different things. There's a stereotype that you got to watch out for the bull. Yeah. Is that as applicable, you know, you've talked about how docile, how wonderful the Abrak cattle are. Does that go for the bull as well? Or do we still need to have a measure of respect and fear? Definitely have to have a measure of respect and fear because the bull is there to protect the herd, right? So if there's a pregnant mom or there's babies on the ground and he's not certain who you are, usually it's the moms who are going to protect the baby. So I've actually had a situation where a mom had just calved She's eating the placenta, the baby's on the ground. She's already licked the baby clean. The baby's laying in the grass. Buzzards are flying in the air. And so I hang around just to make sure the buzzards don't go down, grab the placenta or start trying to pick at the afterbirth that's still back there hanging out of the mom or get the baby because buzzards, even though people say buzzards only eat dead stuff, they don't. They will peck the eyes of that baby just to get, if they're hungry enough, they're going to do what they need to do. And so I got off the tractor and I was just standing there making sure the buzzards, you know, aren't going to come swooping down because then I'm going to interfere and shoo them away. And it was interesting because this mama was all by herself and she's making no sound. You could hear the calf every once in a while would make that little tiny, you know, and the next thing I knew, the other moms are behind me and they came around me. And they got into a semicircle around this mom who is eating the placenta. She's doing what she needs to do, but it takes a while for them to eat it because they don't have teeth to chew that. So it's kind of a spit it out, suck it in. It's kind of icky. But anyway, so they made a circle, a semicircle around this mom and this calf, and they're just looking at me. And I knew it was an ominous kind of feeling. I knew they were like, you are not getting this baby. (laughs) And I was like, I'm just here to keep the buzzards away. (laughs) And so I knew at that moment that they were there and they would take over protecting them from the buzzards. And I got on the tractor and went on my way. But it's an interesting thing. Yeah. The bull did not come along with them. It was more of a maternal kind of thing. I can go up and talk to my bull and touch him. I wouldn't recommend for you to do that. They're not aggressive, but they're protective. They have a job to do. Their job is to impregnate all those cows, right? So they don't want anybody messing or interfering with that job. That makes sense. I typically will lead off with the history. That's my own bias at work, but we're going to finish with the history. You know, when I think about Abrak cattle, I think of them being inextricably associated with the land on which they have been raised. You're working with them in a different context, but As you learned about them, I imagine you also learned about that French context in which they have lived for centuries. What do you know about that background, about the history and the development of the Aubrac breed in France itself? 
So that was a really fascinating part of my journey was just researching that region and the way the cattle were managed. So if you think about that region, it has a lot of lowlands, but it also has a huge mountainous area. The Benedictine Abbey, where they were originally cultivated, I mean, it's a very rugged terrain. And so I thought, you know, their legs are just so strong and so sturdy to be able to manipulate that terrain. I felt like when I was researching that, it's not just the terrain, it's also the climate. Once a year, which is a phenomenal experience if you can ever do it, they have this transhumance, and that's a fancy word, means seasonal rotational grazing. So on the 25th of May, they send these cattle into the mountains for the summer. You know, they put these beautiful headdresses on them with fresh flowers and the cows follow their farmers up into the mountains and they just go and graze all summer long. And then on the 13th of October, they all come down, they know right where to go. (laughs) I mean, because they do it every year. So it's kind of a follow the leader thing. And it's just phenomenal because you see them go from, it's hot in the summer there, like it is here, but it's really cold in the winter. And so the way that they overwinter these cattle It's just amazing. And you think, why don't they get sick? But they don't because they're just so hardy. So in the winter, the farmers have these huge barns and every cow has its stall. And so it goes into the barn and that's where they stay all winter because the winters are so harsh and they feed them and they have this just phenomenal catch basin. And so under the barn is this huge, I don't I don't even know what you call it, like an aqueduct or something. And all the pee and the poop goes through this thing and it goes into this big basin. And in the spring, they spray all that pee and poo on their pastures. It's just so interesting. And I thought, wow, a cow that does that, it changes climates drastically, should be able to thrive here. Because if you think about the different breeds of cattle, so the Angus which is the most popular in the United States because of a really phenomenal marketing campaign, is from Scotland. And they're Black. If you think about the climate where they came from, it was always cold and wet and rainy. And it was the the highlands of Scotland. That does not translate well in different places, which is why you get a lot of crossbred Angus cattle. Like here in Texas, it's called a Brangus. It's the Brahmin because they're more heat tolerant okay. versus the Angus is not as heat tolerant in the South. And I've been to the Obrock region and seen it. And it's just, I thought, well, if they can live there, of course, Texas, we don't have much winter. (laughs) We have a few, a day here and there, and then it's back to normal. Well, this has been entertaining, educational. It's one of those things. I walk through cows all the time and I wonder about cows and I have never sought the answers and you have given me answers. So Michelle, I'm glad I found you and I really appreciate you talking with me. I'm I'm glad I found you too. I'm glad you found me. One of my annual growth goals is to become 10% less of a jackass. The important thing about goals is you've got to be realistic. They have to be attainable. 10% seems doable. That said, 
my treatment of the Beast of Jevedon Museum in Sog back in episode 60 might not bode well for hitting that goal in 2023. You know, it's a tricky thing. When I first wrote the Norte Primitivo guidebook, the most common negative reader feedback centered on one of two things, either humor or positive or negative comments on accommodations. I very quickly moved away from editorializing on the different accommodations as a consequence. Part of that was in recognition of how subjective these experiences are with hospitality and facilities. We're looking for different things in albergues, and even the best hospitalero has bad days and may land differently based on what people are seeking in terms of a host. Part of it was driven by the narrowness of my frame of reference. I don't have first-hand experience staying at every single accommodation in every single town, so I recognize that I risk using my influence to unfairly favor or disadvantage certain places. Those thoughts are on my mind a bit as we go through this series. There are times already when I'm singing the praises of a particular jeet that I've stayed at, and I'm glad to do that, but I also don't want to drive people singularly toward those spotlighted accommodations. The thing is, the, the hospitality on the Via Podiensis is awesome. There aren't many bad jeets. People are generally happy with where they stay. It's hard to go wrong. And part of the fun, I think, is reading through the different options before the trip and finding the places that speak to you, maybe because of the historic nature of the building or because of the background of the host or because of the picture you see of the meal served at dinner. There are all kinds of different reasons. And they all speak to things that are valid and of interest to different people. If praise is tricky, criticism is especially dicey. And here's the big point I want to make about the Beast of Jevedon Museum that I didn't make in episode 60. I'm really glad I went there. It was a super memorable experience. I probably don't need to have that experience twice. But I also don't want to discourage anyone from trying it once. I'm also thinking about the people in SOG, in the community, who have invested time and passion into having that kind of space in their town. I want more towns with those kinds of colorful, memorable museums. If pilgrims go, if pilgrims drop a few euros to visit these kinds of places, they live on. We can make a huge impact there. It's one of the easy, concrete ways we have to give back. And I certainly don't want to discourage you from trying that one out or supporting any other site along the way. Give it a shot when you're in town. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Melinda Lesmore for speaking with me about the second chunk of the Via Podiensis. You can find Melinda at ilovewalkinginfrance.com. Thanks as well to Michelle Crawford of Bidai Creek Farms. You can find her and even order some Aubrac beef at bidaicreekfarms.com. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast's Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week.